0: This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. In the midst of the climate emergency, the world is facing a connected crisis. The stunning loss of biodiversity, the variety of living things on our planet. The World Wildlife
1: Fund estimates we've seen an average 68% drop in mammal, bird, fish, reptile, and amphibian populations since 1970. And in some places, it's even worse. Latin America and the Caribbean have seen a mind-boggling 94% drop in biodiversity in that same period.
2: A million species are at risk of going extinct. And if we don't do anything about that, then we're in trouble.
0: That's Jean Tolly Corpus. Later in this episode, we'll hear my conversation with her about indigenous representation and in efforts to reverse biodiversity loss.
1: Taking stock of how many species we've already lost is really depressing. And even worse because I'm pretty sure we haven't logged every species on the planet, so there are probably even more that are going uncounted. And especially because we know what's causing this loss, and most of those causes point right back to us, to humans.
0: Indeed. Some people might wonder why humans should care if some exotic insect they've never heard of goes extinct. Well, extinctions are like rivets in an airplane. A few can go bust or rust, and the plane can still fly. But at some point, that aircraft is going to be compromised and eventually crash. That's how it is with bees that pollinate our food and forests that filter our water.
1: Right, the main causes are changes to land and sea use. Things like clear-cutting rainforests or converting complex ecosystems into monocultures and rangeland for beef. That leads to habitat loss, which is increasingly compounded by climate disruption.
0: The United Nations says that the climate crisis will become the driving factor in biodiversity loss in the coming decades.
1: In order to help address species collapse, more than 190 countries, signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Biodiversity, recently agreed to a new plan called 30 by 30, which aims to conserve 30% of the world's land and waters by 2030.
0: Tanya Sanareb is international legal director at the Center for Biological Diversity.
3: Conserving 30% of our habitat and our oceans is going to provide amazing mitigating impacts, not just for biodiversity loss, but also for climate.
1: Right now, only about 17% of land on the planet is considered protected and even less of the oceans. So getting to 30% in less than a decade is an ambitious goal.
0: Those numbers are ambitious and daunting, and it's encouraging that 190 countries are on board to strive for them. And a quick note. This episode is supported in part by Resources Legacy Fund. Now let's hear my conversation with Tanya Senarib about the connections between climate disruption and biodiversity loss.
3: Just as these two crises can have compounding impacts, the solutions, particularly when it comes to addressing habitat loss, so and conserving 30% of our habitat and our oceans is going to provide amazing mitigating impacts, not just for biodiversity loss, but also for climate, particularly if we really focus on protecting areas that are rich in biodiversity and also rich in carbon. So as scientists talk about this, when we're talking about sort of carbon-rich, biodiversity-rich ecosystems, we're really thinking about places like forests and wetlands and peatlands, some grasslands and savannas, Coastal ecosystems as well, mangroves, salt marshes, then we get into oceans and kelp forests and seagrasses, and we have some deep water and polar blue carbon habitats. So that's really what we're talking about. There's a number of places globally, sort of six priority areas that really are carbon rich and biodiverse rich that we want to talk about protecting. I think most of us know the first one, right? It leaps to mind, it's the Amazon. And that's a really crucial area in terms of being able to sequester carbon, but also to protect an enormous amount of biodiversity. Likewise, we have amazing rainforest ecosystems in Central and West Africa and lots of other areas in the world. Those rainforests are really going to be a crucial part to how we mitigate climate impacts because of their ability to sequester carbon. It turns out that these forests are also home to a critically endangered species, the forest elephant. Unfortunately, like all elephants in Africa, forest elephants have had their populations tremendously impacted by poaching for their ivory tusks. And for that reason, they are a critically endangered species. If we were to lose forest elephants, it turns out that the ecosystems they come from would lose somewhere between Six to nine percent of their ability to capture atmospheric carbon.
0: So, So, explain for me how an elephant helps a forest be more healthy and capture more carbon.
3: Yeah, it doesn't really seem intuitive, but turns out that forest elephants are phenomenal gardeners. So by consuming biomass, they plant the forest with high carbon density trees. They do that by consuming biomass and defecating it out. So they give tree species sort of that best shot at life um, by having seeds that are placed in a really nutrient rich environment to start off their lives. At the same time, elephants are phenomenal at weeding the forest. So they go in and remove a lot of the lower carbon density trees, and undergrowth that help those high carbon density trees have the space that they need to really survive, thrive, and take up lots of carbon.
0: So so elephants take weeds and turn them into fertilizer through their poop that then fuels the growth of trees that absorb lots of carbon.
3: Absolutely. And so that's one of the ways when we sort of think about carbon-rich and biodiversity-rich ecosystems, we need to stop thinking just about, oh yeah, it's a rainforest, it has amazing trees, we need to save that. We have to think about all those component parts because we're just starting to understand the really crucial role and the connectivity between all the species that evolved in some of these ecosystems and how that really helps them, not only in terms of maintaining biodiversity, but in terms of mitigating climate change impacts as well.
0: When people mention biodiversity, often think about some funny-looking creature far away that I will never see and don't really know what function it performs. Why should we care about those species?
3: Well, it turns out that a lot of the amazing weirdos that are part of our biodiversity are also just as crucial for, for saving our ecosystems. And so another good example is the Ohio River Basin. In a freshwater mussel species. So this freshwater mussel is called the purple catspa pearly mussel. And I have to say mussels, hands down, have the most amazing names probably of any species on the planet. We propagated that species in captivity and reintroduced it into the wild. And the results were phenomenal. So freshwater mussels are really important because they filter water and improve water quality. So you immediately have that benefit in the ecosystem, but they also serve as an important food source. And so you start to see fish, otters, and freshwater turtles returning when they get their food source. back. The other thing that freshwater mussels do is they provide, as their populations grow, they stabilize stream banks. And that provides the opportunity for regrowth of riparian vegetation. And that starts to provide habitat for birds, provides shade for amphibians, it provides opportunities for other fish species to come back to the stream areas. And so you have mussels that come into this ecosystem that were on the verge of extinction, they get reintroduced, and you see a complete resurgence in the ecosystem. They're not the charismatic elephants, right? But this tiny little species played this crucial role in basically renewing an entire ecosystem.
0: So knowing that mussels perform that filtering cleaning function, do you eat mussels? Should people eat mussels?
3: You know, it's an interesting question. And I think one of the things that people who study biodiversity have learned is sometimes it is our connection to a species, whether it's something that we like as a food source, or it's a native plant that we like growing in our gardens, that human connection, that understanding of that thing, for example, salmon for us in the Pacific Northwest, people love eating it. And as a result, we care a lot more about conserving it than perhaps we would if we didn't care about having it as a food source, right? I mean, salmon, I think are spectacular, amazing stories. Their life stories unbelievable how they feed so many species when they return to spawn, how their carcasses get pulled inland and they feed the forest. And through that understanding, that sort of link of eating those fish, we come to understand the entire benefits that they provide to an ecosystem. Now that said, we have so many people on the planet that we can't all consume wildlife in that manner
0: So one central idea behind 30 by 30 is that if we protect land and water, nature will rebound in ways you've just mentioned. And you also mentioned food production. So how do we feed 9, 10 billion people? What change needs to happen to our industrial food system to meet these 30 by 30 conservation goals? Is there a collision between food productivity and conservation?
3: I think right now there absolutely is. One of the big things that we have to address in the biodiversity crisis is how we transition to conserving 30 percent of our lands in a way that accounts for indigenous peoples and also focuses on livelihoods and how we transition agriculture away from industrial systems to much smaller systems that have pathways for migration, pathways and borders and areas that provide protection for biodiversity um, that will benefit both the planet as well as the crops that are being grown in, on a smaller scale, we're really looking at livelihoods returning to communities and providing benefits for local people rather than for large industries. But that's going to take a lot of work on our part, and it's going to take a lot of work economically in terms of rejiggering how we handle subsidies. Because right now we have a tremendous amount of subsidies that go to agriculture that are incredibly harmful for biodiversity.
0: So we have this big agreement that you say is a big deal. The Biden administration has committed to its own 30 by 30 plan, but the U.S. did not sign on to the U.N. agreement. Why not?
3: Yeah. So the United States is not a party to the Convention on Biological diversity and that's because our Senate has failed to ratify that convention. In large part, um, that is a result of what I would say is the third pillar of that agreement, which is the equitable sharing of nature's benefits. That sounds nice but boil it down into our capitalist system and that means that big pharmaceutical companies that have taken you know samples of nature from all over the world created drugs that they make tremendous profits off of would need to share those benefits back to the countries that they came from and as a result they've done a phenomenal job of keeping the united states out of joining the convention on biological diversity not having us have that seat at the table can really diminish our ability to also talk about solutions, right? I think that there is a recognition that because of our oversized role, we need to do a lot in terms of contributing resources. Um, funding is a huge issue. It held up negotiations on adopting this UN biodiversity framework, you know, until two in the morning um, on the last day, right? I mean, it, you know, and you see that happen all the time in climate negotiations as well. Not having the U.S. have that really firm seat at the table, you know, that changes the dynamic there. But also in terms of transferring technology and building capacity, those are really crucial things that the United States also needs to be doing when we get back to that question of equity. How do we make sure that we're actually really making up for historically and currently what we're consuming? One thing that is really interesting about the text of the UN Biodiversity Agreement is a very important recognition of the role of Indigenous peoples, in particular, and trying to attain the 30 by 30 goal. So that target itself recognizes the rights of Indigenous peoples. It says we have to ensure as we engage in this exercise that we ensure there's prior informed consent. And so while we are simultaneously talking about getting destructive human activities out of areas that are important for biodiversity conservation, we're simultaneously recognizing that indigenous peoples have a long history of protecting biodiversity and that they may do it in ways that are slightly different from some Western concepts. But that does get into larger questions around the UN biodiversity framework around equity, right? As in climate, you all talk about Common but differentiated responsibilities, respective capabilities, right? That's been a big part of, of the discussions.
0: Which means basically means the rich countries created the problem. They have to do more to solve it. The people who didn't did very little don't can't be expected to share equally in the solution.
3: Absolutely. And unfortunately, those people who didn't create the problem are the ones who are suffering the consequences first, right? So there's there's really equity sort of on on both sides, unfortunately. And we have the same problem with when it comes to biodiversity. Um, if you look at the United States, for example, um, to get to our place socioeconomically, we have an awful history of colonization, of slavery, tremendous use of natural resources to acquire our status globally. At the same time, while we now have pretty phenomenal um, environmental laws from a, a global standpoint, and in terms of protecting biodiversity, trying to ensure species don't go extinct in our country. We have a great Endangered Species Act, but what we don't account for is the fact that we export our extinction footprint to other countries. We consume a tremendous amount of biodiversity from other countries. We import all sorts of crazy things, Reg, from kangaroo leather shoes, bats encased in plastic from China, primate skulls from Southeast Asia, all sorts of luxury goods made from wildlife that fuel the biodiversity crisis. And we don't really take into account the fact that we have these ramifications in other parts of the world.
0: And right now we have a moment in the climate conversation where there's a movement to electrify everything and to get away from Uh, extracting coal and oil and burning it, and to use the sun and the wind. But to do that requires a lot of copper wires, a lot of lithium for uh, EV batteries. That is extraction that happens in the global south. So is there a collision course between electrify everything to get away from fossil fuels and protecting these resource-rich areas in the global south that are the kinds of ecosystems you want to protect?
3: You know, that has been a traditionally thorny issue, right, when we come to talk about how do we solve these two crises together. And I think what's really exciting is my organization, along with 290 other entities, Indigenous peoples, frontline communities, environmental justice groups, um, just sent a letter to Congress and the administration that's accompanied with a positive policy briefing called Pursuing a Just and Renewable Energy System that maps out how the United States can scale up renewables and get off fossil fuels and do it in a way that isn't going to cause that sort of surgence, both in terms of how we site renewables and then also how we get the materials needed to upscale renewables. And so let's talk about that a little bit, because this is the kind of creative thinking that I think the UN scientists, both in the climate and biodiversity spheres, are talking about when they talk about transformative change. We have to get creative and rethink these systems. And part of, I'm not going <laughs> to pull my punches here, part of this means we have to drastically change mass transit in this country, right? We have to decarbonize transportation because if we truly want to not wreak havoc on biodiversity and mining for some of these essential minerals we need for renewables, then we're going to have to change some of the things in our country that are not sustainable. So when we think about producing lithium, um, and the report really gets into this, we need to invest in mass transit. We need to limit battery size. We need to increase city density, limit urban, suburban sprawl. So you're really condensing people, making it easier for them to move around in ways that aren't car dependent, right? And then think about robust recycling programs. That's something we are absolutely terrible about in the United States. We have this expendable, you know, budget, and you know, rather than fixing something, we're going to toss it and get a new one. Um, and by toss it, I don't mean recycle it. A lot of times, uh, these are things that are going to landfill. So we absolutely can take a whole of supply chain approach to decarbonizing the transportation system
0: the biden administration right now is trying to onshore reshore manufacturing but some environmentalists are like no we don't want that factory here that lithium mine in nevada we'd rather have it be somewhere else in another country where we don't see it
3: yeah and you know the thing is if we actually if we actually change what we need and we conserve resources more and we recycle more that factory doesn't have to go anywhere right and that's the kind of transformative thinking that we need to start talking about. We have, we can't just say, oh, we have this system. How do we make it work for renewables? What we have to talk about is how do we f- reform the system so we're going to have a livable future? And um, and I want to talk a little bit about the siting side of things, right? Because that's the other big conflict. When we get into renewables, there's this really big concern on the part of environmentalists, and on the part of frontline communities that we're talking about destroying biodiversity destroying communities with you know mass solar panels and 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 inciting of renewables in ways that are going to be really detrimental to biodiversity and to justice communities and that's the other component of this that i thought was really interesting because we identify three ways that we can upscale renewables to meet our energy demands and we don't have to actually degrade places where communities live or biodiversity so The first thing is, and I'm sure you've heard this before because people do say this a lot, but, you know, we need to do the large scale renewables on built environments. So we have to be looking at parking lots, at canals, rights of way of highways, and degraded lands that already have access to existing transmission lines that aren't going to impact communities and biodiversity. But we have to couple that with two other things. Um, And I think this is, again, where we get into creativity. Um, We really need to be thinking about microgrids. And we need to make sure that we're producing energy where it gets used. And so that means we're putting solar panel on everyone's home.
0: You know, some electrical people would say that rooftop solars cost more than industrial utility scale solar, and that makes it elite and less affordable, et cetera. So that's, you know, so brings in equity questions. This is a really naughty, gnarly puzzle to solve.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. But the other component of it is, of course, we have to change how we live our lives too, right? There's a major conservation impact here. We have to think about weatherizing all of our structures, our homes to our offices. You know, we want to get off of fossil fuels, transition to heat pumps. There's a lot of things that we can do in terms of changing how we live our lives and really changing from sort of, you know, the fast fashion culture that we have right now in the United States to a more circular Um, economy, Mm -hmm, where we mm -hmm. think about the long-term impacts of everything that we buy, we make sure that everything that we acquire is going to be something that can be recycled, composted, reused down the road, and having that shift. And that means a major change in our consumption patterns. And we need that both in terms of addressing the climate crisis, but also in terms of the biodiversity crisis, right? Those kangaroo leather shoes, you don't need those, you know, leave them for the kangaroos.
0: Tanya, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your enthusiasm about diversity with us today.
3: I was happy to be here. Thank you.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about saving and restoring our planet's biodiversity. We have a brand new website that makes it easy to share specific episodes or even whole playlists on topics including food, energy, justice, and more. Check it out at climateone.org. And if you like today's episode, share it with a friend. Coming up... How a different relationship with our environment could lead to better human behavior
2: for indigenous peoples we regard ourselves as rich if we're able to maintain a healthy relationship with nature
0: that's up next in 2022 the kunming montreal global biodiversity framework was adopted at the un biodiversity conference in montreal over 190 nations who are part of the Convention on Biological Diversity or CBD agreed to the goal of conserving 30% of land and water by 2030. The United States and the Vatican are the only holdouts. Numerous studies show indigenous people have a disproportionately positive impact on maintaining habitat and species health. Jing Tali Corpus is from the Kakanae Igorot people of the Philippines. And is managing director of policy and advocacy lead for Neo She says the Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework is crucial.
2: It's meant to stop the sixth great extinction, and a million species are, on, are at risk of going extinct. And if we don't do anything about that, um, then we're in trouble. The bees are going to be to disappear. And we won't have any crops, anything to eat if the bees are are gone, right? So, so yeah, it's, it's quite significant. It's important.
0: And what's the role of Indigenous people in saving the bees and the other biodiversity that helps the food we eat and, and a lot of the economy?
2: Going into the, the negotiations, what the CBD did was to conduct studies on where biodiversity is is found currently. And one of the discoveries in the global assessment on biodiversity and ecosystem services is that biodiversity is declining everywhere. However, it is declining at a much slower rate in Indigenous peoples' territories, Indigenous peoples' and local communities' territories. And so it was quite clear that in places governed by Indigenous peoples, whether it was... um, Covered by protected areas or not, uh, biodiversity was thriving. And so, you know, they couldn't escape acknowledging the role of indigenous peoples because obviously we're the best guardians of nature as shown by the scientific studies that were conducted before the negotiations.
0: But some people might think that, okay, you know, indigenous people are good stewards of land. They also have a less developed, I don't know, lower standard of living. So does that, does stewarding lands like Indigenous people mean a lower material standard of living?
2: Now, see, um, that's a very Western point of view, no? Um, in the the current mainstream view, the way to measure success is through the GDP, the income per person in a country. However, for Indigenous peoples, the way that you measure poverty and the way that you measure progress is quite different i'll give you an example in one of our partner countries in Vanuatu they they tried to determine indicators of melanesian well-being so that's um how indigenous peoples measure their well-being uh, the result is that um, people there valued the ability to practice rituals the ability to access land and resources and uh, the ability to speak an indigenous language so in short it's not Uh, the income that matters. It's the way that that Indigenous people maintain their relationship with nature that matters. So it may be primitive in one way of measuring things, but for Indigenous peoples, we regard ourselves as rich if we're able to maintain a healthy relationship with nature
0: sure well we know that lots of capitalistic societies have lots of material wealth and wealth and not so much health and anxiety and you know those are, are things don't necessarily make us happy or healthy. Last year at the UN Climate Conference in Egypt, I spoke with Johnson Cerda, a kachwa from the Ecuadorian Amazon, and he expressed some frustration over the fact that indigenous people, while they're increasingly included in the conversations, they aren't recognized at the same level as governments that are members of the United Nations, which is built on nation states. So do you feel you had a voice at the UN Biodiversity Conferences, even though you're not representing a nation state?
2: Well, the Biodiversity Conference is a bit more open, I think, that uh, than how they do things in the climate space. Because in, in the biodiversity space, almost all of the meetings are open are and accessible for Indigenous peoples. This is not the same in the climate space. Almost all of the meetings there are closed. And um, although they did establish a local communities and indigenous peoples platform, at the moment, it's not clear to what extent the discussions in that platform are able to influence the actual negotiations of the climate convention. That's why the demand from indigenous peoples is for recognition of indigenous peoples as nations at par with the countries. Because if you look at indigenous societies, we are nations. We have people we have a territory, we have a government, we have customary governance rules, we have a governance structure. And so if you look at the definition of a country or a nation, most Indigenous peoples would qualify.
0: And there's definitely more inclusion and, uh, you know, recognition, talk about including Indigenous people and all, and these conversations at all levels, even included in the United States, regarding the Colorado River internationally, and this biodiversity convention. Yet for centuries, colonial powers have exploited indigenous peoples and in their land and then promised to make amends. Do you see anything different this time around?
2: One strand of debate or one strand of discussion during the, the negotiations for the global biodiversity framework was the colonial legacy of conservation. The way that um, the United States was obtained or colonized from the Native Americans, you know, it's a caricature, no? Land in exchange for trinkets. But the truth is, it's still happening nowadays. Colonization is alive and well, especially in the climate and in the biodiversity spaces. Um, The idea of fortress conservation is a very colonial legacy. Um, The idea that you have to eject people from land in order to keep it healthy. Um, when in fact, we're, we're seeing more and more evidence that in places occupied by indigenous peoples, in fact, they have been carefully managing their territory for centuries. Deep in the Amazon, they've discovered evidence of agriculture, of fer- fertilizing the soil through ashes. So um, so yeah, the, the colonial legacy is there, but we're trying to to subvert the legacy. And in the biodiversity space, that's that's um, that's why the Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework is such a breakthrough, because it recognized that there are places that are well managed by people who live close to nature. So, um, so yeah, yeah, uh, there's definitely still colonial legacies, but we're trying to uh, to change that.
0: One way to change that is not have this fortress conservation, which is, you know, get all the people off the land and preserve it, which is, you say, this colonial legacy and that the global biodiversity framework is a good basis for walking hand in hand with indigenous people. But what measures are in place to ensure that will be implemented different this time?
2: I'll I'll take target three or 30 by 30 as an example. In the previous incarnation of that target, it was called Target 11, and it's the area based conservation target. And there was only one small word uh, to make sure that violations of Indigenous people's rights don't occur and that there's an opportunity for Indigenous peoples to act as partners. And that word was equity. And obviously, it wasn't enough, it wasn't a, a sufficient safeguard to prevent violations of Indigenous people's rights. So now, we made it a point in target three to ask for three main inclusions in the language. The first is to make sure that indigenous peoples are able to consent before protected areas are established over their territories. The second is to recognize the governance system of indigenous peoples as a governance system that is good for biodiversity. And the last one is to recognize the need to partner with Indigenous peoples if implementation of the target is to be successful. And that's why we now have um, recognizing Indigenous and traditional territories in the language. We have governance in there, and we have the need to recognize the rights of Indigenous peoples at the tail end of the target.
0: The climate effort and the biodiversity effort are connected and somewhat different. We have these big international efforts to address both things. Sometimes there's tension between the climate goals and the biodiversity goals. For example, electrifying homes in the economy means getting off fossil fuels. It also means mining for copper and lithium, which are often located in indigenous areas in the global south. So how do you see the tension between the climate goals and biodiversity?
2: Well, Uh, Yeah, you know what? First of all, it's really incredible for me that it was only in uh, COP26 in 2022 that the linkage between nature and culture was recognized in a formal resolution or a formal decision of the Climate Change Conference. So that was incredible for us as Indigenous peoples, because when we govern our territories on the ground. We don't we don't identify whether one particular action is contributing to biodiversity and you know whether the other actions are contributing to, to climate mitigation. So um it's all the same governance actions on the ground. So for us, it's very clear there's a link between biodiversity and climate change. However, there are risks in the way that we design the solutions, which is why one of the things that the indigenous movement has said is that we have contributed the least to biodiversity loss and to climate change and global warming. And yet we stand to suffer the most because we are in the front lines. And at the same time, in the proposed solutions, our rights that are also at risk. One example is if you think about climate solutions without considering biodiversity, planting monoculture trees you no know, monoculture plantations it, it meets the goals of the climate convention because the more trees the better but then you ignore the need for diversity in a certain forest in a certain area and then what you mentioned about the mining for transition minerals is also a risk that we face you know in the course of implementing solutions to the climate crisis most of the minerals that, that need to be used for for electric uh, vehicles, they are found in indigenous lands. And what we're finding nowadays is that mining for transition minerals, um, you know, because of the social need and, and the, the need, well, in general, the need for those minerals, the safeguards for indigenous peoples and indigenous people's rights tend to be ignored.
0: I've noticed that some environmental organizations, even state governments like California, paying more attention now to indigenous practices because fires are burning throughout the American West. And like indigenous people have used fire as a tool and long history of of better management of forests. One organization I know to protect forests recently brought on the first indigenous person to be on their board i thought well that's kind of late but better late than never how do you react to the these organizations suddenly recognizing indigenous people after after so long
2: well that's exactly the re, the reaction right better late than never i mean it's it's super late for for organizations to be recognizing the role of indigenous peoples uh, however better late than never so one of our partners in in Australia, the Wardakin people, have been practicing cultural burning for thousands of years, and because of the problem with the wildfires, now their skills as uh, those that practice cultural burning it there it's now in demand. There's even a global alliance of uh, savanna burning. <laughs> recognizing that indigenous peoples have a lot to contribute in that space. And the idea there is that cool burns, you know, uh, burns during the, um, the cool season prevent uh, bigger burns, wildfires during the dry season. And because of the close relationship of indigenous peoples with nature, um, that, that's something that um, that we were able to notice and practice early on, and so, you know, it's uh, better late than never. There's big, there's now recognition of uh, cultural burning. There's also recognition of Indigenous guardians. And now there are many, many organizations that are scrambling to include Indigenous peoples in their staff, in their board, their decision-making structures. Because um, they recognize, well, <laughs> one part is because a lot of pledges for funding are to Indigenous peoples. And the second thing, the less cynical point of view, is that we need to tap into Indigenous knowledge in order to make sure that we're designing solutions correctly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit of that. Oh, we, we need that knowledge now because we're in trouble, or we might get some money from it uh, by including you. You've talked about being able to swim in the local river when you were four with your three year old brother without your parents, which as a parent terrifies me. But you say the whole community was there to watch out for you. How do you think that influenced your approach to the work you do today?
2: The lesson from that experience for me is um, the need to respect collective power. And just respecting that people, when they work collectively, and when they govern themselves collectively, and so forth, they have they have power, but also at the same time they have solutions, because of this idea that um, we have we have to move together as one. We have to make sure that no single entity within the the collective is uh, accumulating more. And their share, and, you know, and that decisions are taken also collectively. So it, that was an important lesson for me, and it's guiding me in my work now, the respect for the collective and the, you know, the need to recognize that the Indigenous peoples as collectives are nations. They have, our, they have their own uh, rules and laws, customary law, and the, that they have their own ways of deciding on things including matters of justice, matters of criminal law, matters of how to use resources, but also deciding whether extractive industries can enter the community or not.
0: Thank you so much, Jing, for sharing your story and insights on biodiversity.
1: Thanks so much, Greg. Coming up, even with a framework in place to address biodiversity loss, how can regulations be enforced where no national authority exists?
4: The High Seas is this crazy, thorny place where no one really feels they have the jurisdiction, nor do they want to put up the money to do anything about it.
1: That's up next. On land, countries and governments can enact regulations to help slow the trajectory of biodiversity loss. But there are huge parts of the ocean that fall under no national jurisdiction, complicating efforts to preserve fishing and marine biodiversity. We talked about this with Ian Urbina, author of The Outlaw Ocean and director and founder of The Outlaw Ocean Project.
4: The high seas, which is that realm beyond national waters, it's a realm defined by a lack of government control. No one country owns it, uh, but it belongs to everyone. The end result is that you can go out there and do largely as you please, even if there are rules that apply to that space. There are not cops, there are not police that enforce them. And so that can be good and that can be bad, you know, but it's it's largely an ungoverned space and and therefore the best and the worst of uh, human nature manifest. You've
1: reported on all kinds of crimes that happen on the high seas from illegal fishing to illegal dumping to slavery and murder. What do you see as the main drivers of some of those crimes?
4: Money. You know, I think at the end of the day, resources. So broader than money, it's the sort of competition forever, diminishing resources, whether the resources are time, whether the resources are access to labor, the resources are oil and gas or fish or permission to cross a certain terrain. These are all resources and there's competition for it. And that competition is what largely... Incentivizes players to sometimes cut corners. Why obey that law that says you're not allowed to use that certain type of net because it's going to kill baby fish and collapse the ocean biosphere? Why obey that law that says you're not allowed to go into that area of protected waters? Uh, Because um, if you do, then it's going to be harder for you to catch your quota. But if you don't, you can get home a week earlier. How has
1: climate change and stresses on the oceans, affected fisheries in ways that have also led to increased human desperation.
4: The combination of climate change and overfishing and illegal fishing, kind of it's a evil trinity that has conspired to make it tougher to do the work of fishing. Because number one, climate change has resulted in many things, including shifting water temperature, the shifting water temperature has caused mass reshuffling of where fish go, how long they stay, when they procreate, etc., And that has sowed unpredictability into the equation that fishermen are calculating as they decide where to go, how long they'll be at sea, how much fuel do they need, how can they break even. When you don't really know where the fish are headed, or they're headed much further from shore to a different country's waters, et cetera, it becomes harder for you to survive. I think overfishing also and climate change have caused a lot of the near shore stocks to collapse. And so the easier to catch fish are um, gone in many places in the world. And so that means that uh, fishing fleets have to go much further out and stay much longer at sea and therefore come back with much less profit, if any. Most of the high seas fishing uh, fleets in the world are actually unprofitable were they not to have subsidies, state subsidies. So these things are intensifying competition. And climate change, you know, also has just made for more desperation on land. So uh, even when you can catch the fish and you bring it back to land, your ability to uh, sell it. It's much tougher just because of um, drought in many of these places and, and other instabilities that cause, especially in the developing world, the, the market that they used to think was stable to no longer be.
1: In December, the UN adopted what's known as the Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. This was largely hailed as a win for getting nations to agree to the goal of conserving 30% of land and water by 2030. With everything we've been discussing, how could restrictions on overfishing be enforced?
4: If we just look at overfishing on the high seas portion of the planet rather than the national waters, which is this other thorny area, there's are some big things that could really move the ball downfield. One is Ships should be seen you know in the post 9 eleven era you can't fathom the notion of a 747 leaving from Boston heading to Taipei and going dark and not you know announcing when it's leaving where it's headed, keeping its transponder on while it's en route, indicating to all the relevant party who's on board, what are they carrying you know all that sort of stuff is normalized in other industries trains, trucks, airplanes, But distant water fishing vessels, fishing vessels that are on the high seas, have been allowed both legally and just culturally uh, and in policy to uh, operate by a different set of rules. And going dark, being invisible, is normalized. That's crazy. You know, that that has to stop tomorrow. Um, And the first way that we can actually have a chance at enforcing rules is making sure we know who the rule obeyers should be and where are they.
1: And I would guess that part of the problem is just the scale of the ocean relative to humans' ability to monitor it, right? I don't know if there's anything on the scale of like uh, satellite monitoring or um, any kind of international force that that could or could be created to do this, or if that's even the way to go.
4: So imagine there are these dots on the map, they're traversing the big blue, and your game board challenge is how can you keep your eyes on those dots? Well, those dots, those ships have information that you can either see them from space without their permission or you know, or not, or you can force them to transpond. So they, they have to keep their signal going or both. And then the other place where you can apply pressure on them is when those guys come to shore, you can say, wait, you were dark for three weeks. We can't take your stuff. You cannot possibly give us your stuff. We cannot unload those goods, and so those are the three categorical ways that you would you would probably impose um, traceability on the, these carriers of goods, these extractors of goods. The most promise, in my humble opinion, is eyes in the sky without their permission. You know, we put up enough satellites. And there's some folks pushing for this. Right now, there are satellites up there and you can see everything everywhere, but they cost a lot of money and you have, there's all sorts of logistical challenges. And you, me, or the relevant NGO doesn't have the price point access to that material. Um, Militaries do, governments do. That's got to change. It's got to be sort of publicly available and accessible and you'd need a lot more satellites up there, et cetera, et cetera. But that's probably the best chance because then you don't have to ask permission. We can see whether you want to be seen or not.
1: And you mentioned that you know airplanes can't really go dark and can't also just sort of arrive somewhere with a bunch of stuff and not say where it came from. So how would that be handled?
4: Because the high seas is this crazy, thorny place where no one really feels they have the jurisdiction, nor do they want to put up the money to do anything about it. You probably need, are looking at the market players who benefit from the stuff that crosses there. So the big buyers of goods would have to get a lot of pressure from the public, journalists and NGOs and lawyers. And, and they'd say, look... You shouldn't be associated with this and you should hold a higher bar. And basically, you shouldn't be allowed to take goods unless these criteria are met. You know, when you get your goods, your fish, or whatever it is, it should only come off of ships that can prove they abided by these 10 rules. Right. And that's, in my view, probably what will work because governments shift and the turnover rates fast and they don't get along and all that. But market players. Uh, can make unilateral decisions and the big market players you know can affect the entire marketplace if they impose rules on their own supply chain because then the people that want to play ball with that big player make changes and they might as well make changes for all their buyers as opposed to just the one that's you know giving them a hard time
1: so let's talk about national governments taking some action can you tell us the story of palau Uh, For a while, it looked like a David and Goliath story, success of a tiny underfunded nation taking on Chinese fishing fleets, illegally fishing in their waters. Uh, In that story, what worked and what didn't?
4: Well, so, you know, when I reported the Palau story, I found myself split between two different cliche tropes. You know, one is the David and Goliath, and the other is the myth of Sisyphus. You know, myth of Sisyphus keeps pushing the rock up the hill only for it to roll back down and do it again. And I wasn't sure which was the best one for Palau. It's this tiny nation, right? It's an archipelago nation. It has the landmass of Philadelphia and the sea space of France. And it had two ships, you know, 17 guys that were patrolling this realm that's impossible to patrol. And they are in a rough neighborhood on the planet in terms of illegal fishing, huge industrial fishing nations nearby traversing their waters. So it was just this sort of wild west for them where everyone was poaching their stuff. And, that, you know, what worked was, number one, you had a president who cared, and this meant a lot to him. And he was willing, president of Palau at the time, he was willing to really push through politically thorny um, provisions, you know, marine protected areas that were super expansive and were going to anger some of their local, you know, fishermen um, and foreign uh, lobbies, etc., Um, And so you had that one. And number two, you had some big wealthy players like Australia in particular that were willing to stand by this government and offer up intel, military support, vessels. So really bolstering their effort to sort of change the narrative and better patrol their waters and some far away places like the U.S. and U.K. who were offering eyes-in-the-sky military-grade satellite information that could save those two vessels chasing every different robber and instead target better because they they knew where to go and who to prioritize. Um, the sad part of the story was... As is often the case, you know governments change, and um, when that guy went out of power in Palau, a new person came in, took over, different set of priorities, put in office by a different set of constituencies, and now all of a sudden there was the beginning quiet rollback of many of the progressive protective provisions that the former president had put in place. And the story now is not as hopeful uh, because a lot of the protections have been removed uh, since uh, the new leadership came into office.
1: So in thinking about stories of preservation success, you point to a case in Brazil where the government had opened up an area near the mouth of the Amazon for gas drilling. Tell us what happened next.
4: Yeah, it was. A, th- this was an illustrative story because in many ways, one was you have a realm, which is the seafloor, which is hard to get to. You need very specialized equipment, submarines. You need a lot of resources to get down there. And the reason... Different players might want to get down there are different. Those who want to extract oil and gas want to get down there because there's a lot of money to be made. Um, They have a lot of money already, and therefore they have the resources to buy and dispatch ROVs and to sort of assess the landscape. Those who might want to protect those waters or at least know whether there's risk to the biodiversity that's in those waters are. Scientific community, uh, you know, advocates, Greenpeace, the like, and the local government—they mostly don't have the resources to actually get down to the seafloor and check it out. So you have a fundamental gap in resources that matters when it comes time to giving a license to drill. So the government of, in this case, Brazil, gave permission, uh, sold permits to oil and gas companies to drill in these regions, the companies put forward their own hired scientific evidence that showed there would be no harm. They were not drilling in places that were at risk or vulnerable or delicate, and it would be fine. But the government of Brazil didn't have the resources to check that independently. So along came Greenpeace with a big ship and a submarine, brought a bunch of Brazilians on board. I was there watching the whole thing. And this race began where the advocates and the scientists put a sub in the water, at, at first with resistance from the Brazilian government, but finally they caved and went to the seafloor to check out what's down there, what might be at stake. And what they found was exactly as they expected. Lots of undiscovered you know, um, species, some species that were known but were actually at, at risk, a huge coral wall wall that was much bigger than originally thought all things that would definitely be traumatized possibly decimated by an accident or even just standard drilling and so the greenpeace and the scientists got together and said hey look uh this is a problem and the 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 companies didn't tell us all these things that are down there that might be at risk and that gummed up the whole process which was the point that the advocates were trying to achieve
1: so a success in terms of blocking the project, right? I mean, they didn't go ahead.
4: Temporarily. But again, here's where you get back to the unfortunate reality of government and politics. And so, you know, one administration in Brazil slowed it down, you know, and put the brakes and legal fights came up and everything happened as the advocates wanted. Until the next administration came in in Brazil, which was much more pro-industry, pro-opening the water to oil and gas, etc., and they cleared the way much more effectively. The drilling has not started, and so it has not. But it's the, you know the the last administration, the most recent administration before Lula, was heading back in the direction of opening it up and allowing oil and gas to come in and drill that region.
1: We did a previous episode on Climate One about deep sea mining, which has some similar issues in terms of being able to actually monitor what's happening. Uh, And meanwhile, the push for batteries for cars and grid-scale storage has accelerated the demand for minerals, critical materials needed to make these batteries. There are corporations like the Metals Company who say that they can collect these polymetallic nodules from the seafloor with less environmental impact than land-based mining. So I'm curious what you think about deep-sea mining as a way to meet this growing demand for materials for batteries.
4: Well, I'm, I'm personally pretty skeptical, and I think most environmentalists are pretty skeptical of seabed mining. And the ones I hear from that I find smarter and trust more uh, say, look, if you pull the helicopter up to altitude and look at the bigger picture, the short-term fix that is supposedly being offered by these manganese nodules on the seafloor, is unproven, financially insane, the amount of revenue and carbon emissions that would be involved in getting at those things. If you actually look at the math, the, the dollars and the carbon emissions to get those manganese nodules from the seafloor, as opposed to where we get them now, it doesn't quite add up to carbon savings and financial boon, as you might be told by the industry. And then secondly, look, the, the overall problem is that We're going to solve one problem but create three more, and um, we probably need to figure out other ways to build the solar panels and long-lasting batteries that don't run us into a new situation of having to embrace child labor in the Congo or use things that are going to destroy other parts of the environment and possibly unlock huge masses of carbon from the seafloor anyway in the process.
1: And not just release carbon, but also destroy ecosystems, right? Isn't there, I mean, it's unclear what the impact would be of churning up that much
4: sediment, s-
1: Sediment, yeah, and underwater. Yeah,
4: yeah. Mm. I mean, and again, I want to be careful of two, you know, there is a chicken little thing here where um, we are alluding to worries of threats that have not been demonstrated, and therefore we could sound a little bit like we're being skeptical for its own sake. But in fairness, the opposite is also scary, allowing industry to get too far out in front of the science or the law on this stuff um, is a formula for problems. And if they've already put the bulldozers on the seafloor and the huge vacuums pulling the stuff up, and then only ten years down the road, do scientists realize in the process we did terrible things? It's going to be too late to turn that industry around then.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate your uh, clear eye uh, look at that, and I will also say that I would just opine that like our history is not great in this in this regard. You know, we've to have a lot of examples of things that we've allowed industry to pursue and then find out, oh no, that actually is harmful. You've also written about Sea Shepherd uh, engaging in the longest pursuit of an illegal fishing vessel in nautical history. In both this case and the National Geographic case in Brazil that we were just talking about, non-governmental organizations were doing what governments could not or would not do. So what do you think about the role of NGOs when it comes to enforcement?
4: Band-Aid. You know, I like Band-Aids. If I got a cut, I want one. Um, But it's not going to actually solve the Caught, you know, I need stitches and antibiotics to really fix it. Uh, and I think NGOs are a band-aid and we should not be relying on them. There are very few NGOs out there on the water. You know, it's extremely expensive. You need ships, et cetera. So it's really just Greenpeace, you know, Earth Race, uh, Sea Shepherd that are out there on the water doing this direct action kind of stuff. And I think um, to a large degree, they're filling the gap that the government has left, but it's not the, the solution that, that the planet needs. The governments need to really get involved.
1: You were a PhD candidate in anthropology before you shifted gears and became a reporter. How have your years of reporting on the outlaw ocean shaped your views of human nature?
4: I mean, I was always a dark, kind of pessimistic uh, guy to begin with. But um, I, I guess I think it's verified my original outlook, which is that um, left our own devices humans can engage in pretty dark behavior um and that there is a really important civilizing role played by law and government government and it made me less libertarian let's put it that way you know i I was not libertarian to begin with and i'm less so now i do believe that governments play a very important role in rules and laws and uh, at the same time you know the reporting has inspired me you know with um the bravery and scrappy ingenuity and and um, will to survive and sort of humanity of us creatures um, by seeing things that people are doing out there to put their life on the line to protect others or protect the environment. I've seen a lot of that. I don't write about it as much because uh, I'm an investigative reporter. I focus on the negative stuff, but there's a lot of heroism out there. And um, that really has uh, given me hope for uh, uh, what we are as... Uh, as thinking beings.
1: Ian Urbina is director and founder of the Outlaw Ocean
0: Project. Thank you, Ian, so much for joining us on Climate One.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about how to slow the climate-driven biodiversity crisis. This episode is supported in part by Resources Legacy Fund. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency, Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, awkward, exciting, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. On our new website, you can create and share playlists focused on topics including food, energy, EVs, activism, and more. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. Megan Basili is our production manager. Our development manager is Wensi Shada. Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.